If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We have not done a sermon outside of Exodus in 2019 until today. Uh, We've been walking through the story of God delivering His people Israel from their bondage. And we are uh, starting next week, Exodus 24, and we're about to kind of push fast forward and move a little quicker through the rest of this book. We'll finish Exodus by, uh, Lord willing, uh, Christmas time, and then move on to the next place in God's Word. But this morning we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and the reason is because... This is kind of like a follow-up message to last week. So last week we finished Exodus 23, and that was the famous text where God tells Israel that He wants them to go into the promised land of Canaan and to take that land. That's the land that God wants Israel to take and to set up their kingdom there and to be a holy nation. And Really, this is a call to holy war, right? And many times we hear that and we think, why would God do that? How can a good and just God do that? And there's lots of answers to those questions, but my aim this morning is not to get off into trying to defend God for being God. Instead, what I, I tried to point out last week is that just like Israel was called to this holy war that we as New Covenant Christians are called to a holy war. Not to fight physical enemies, not to go and take land from other people, not anything like that, but we are called to a holy war of being holy, of putting sin in our lives to death, of trusting in and resting in the promises of God, of living on mission, because we have an enemy, Satan, who prowls around like a lion seeking to devour our faith. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers and He wants to deceive us to not believe the promises of God and He wants to accuse us that we are guilty before God and if we listen to those lies, then we will live our life in bondage and we will not take up arms and fight and put forward spirit-filled, gospel-empowered, Christ-exalting effort to pursue holiness. So this so last week I tried to make the case that we are at holy war and the Christian life is a holy war. So we can't live with a peacetime mentality. This week from Hebrews 12, my aim is to show you how to wage that holy war. How to pursue holiness and strive to be like Jesus in this life and to submit to God's will for you. So Hebrews 12 is not right at the beginning of Hebrews. So just real quick, just a a refresher, the book of Hebrews is a long sermon. If you think my sermons are long, imagine 13 chapters, right? That's one long sermon, And this sermon or this letter that is written to the Hebrews, the the big theme of it from beginning to end is that Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is superior to everything. Jesus is better and greater than angels, than Moses, than the high priest, than the Sabbath, than the old covenant, than the, the sacrifices that were offered. He's better than all those things. That's the big idea. 
And then the author of Hebrews expects that because we see that Jesus is greater and better than everything, that's going to change the way that we live. That's going to lead us to trusting in Him. Not just at the beginning of the Christian life, but every day until glory. Resting in and trusting in Him. And this faith that Hebrews calls the believers to is laid out and given... There's examples given in Hebrews 11, the famous hall of faith. Where it says, all of these people in the Old Testament who trusted in the promises of God by faith. They did not experience and see the fulfillment of God's promises because Jesus never came in their lifetime, but they lived looking forward by faith to the promises of God. That's the the background. There's this great cloud of witnesses, this long list of Old Testament believers who trusted God's promises and lived by faith. And that's where chapter 12 picks up, which is where our focus will be this morning. So this morning, instead of reading a large chunk at once, I'm going to read as I go. Okay, so so open up to Hebrews 12, and then just keep your Bible open, because we're going to constantly be going back to the text, looking at the words, looking at the phrases together. Okay, so verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's referring to the Old Testament, Saints, in Hebrews 11, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. The author of Hebrews, in verse 1, describes sin as something that you're carrying around on your back while you're on a race. He describes sin like it's a heavy backpack that's just weighing you down, slowing you down, making you want to give up running the race that God has called you to run. If you are someone who exercises and runs long distances, then you know that it's easier to do that when you're not carrying something heavy on your back, right? You can go much quick, more quickly and you can also last far longer without that. And he, he's describing the Christian life as this race. And sin is like this heaviness that's on you and it weighs you down. It makes you want to quit. It makes you want to think the race is too long. But the the sin doesn't just weigh you down. The sin also clings to you, it says. It doesn't want to let go of you. And if it's close enough, it will magnetically force itself onto you. So it's weighing you down and it's clinging to you and it's keeping you from running the race with endurance. But the author says, lay aside the weight of sin that clings to you. Take off the weight. Get it to stop sticking to you. How? Verse 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising The shame. He says, if you want to finish the race with endurance, if you want to lay aside the sin that is weighing you down, then you've got to lift your eyes and look to 
Jesus. Look to the one who finished the race. Look to the one who paved the trail of salvation. Look to the one who had perfect endurance and who never let sin cling to him. Jesus is the one that all of that great cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 11 looked forward to by faith. And Jesus is the one that we must look to if we will finish our race of holy, sanctified, spirit-filled, sin-killing lives. Why do we have to look to Him? Because Jesus finishing His race is what qualifies us to even be in the race we're running. Jesus finishing the race that was set before Him with perfect, sinless endurance is what qualifies us to even be running this difficult race. Jesus endured the cross. Jesus knows about not quitting, not giving up. For Jesus, the finish line was a Roman cross. It was bearing the judgment of God, not for His sin, but for our sin. And He finished that race. He despised our shame. He faced our judgment and never sinned. So the author says, listen, the author says, if we will endure if we will finish the race of a sin-killing life, if we will finish the race and arrive at holiness, we have to lay aside our sin. And we have to run with zeal in the footsteps of Jesus. And we do that not just by working hard, not just by religious rituals, not just by reading the Bible and coming to church and tithing and things like that. We do that by looking to Jesus. Because our faith must rest in Christ alone. We must never forget who He is and what He has done for us. Jesus is our example to follow, but listen, He's more than an example to follow. He's the author of our salvation. I remember in high school when I became a believer... And and even before that, kind of growing up in church culture, it was popular to wear little bracelets. I call it Jesus junk. They sell it at Christian bookstores and stuff. Um, Just lots of little things to get your money. Anyway, um, but but these said WWJD, right? What would Jesus do? And I had a friend that had one that said push, pray until something happens. And there's probably a whole bunch of other ones that you guys are familiar with. But, but the what would Jesus do, the idea was, is when you face some sort of temptation, you need to think, what would Jesus do in this case? And then you need to do what Jesus would do. And, that, and that's, that's true. It would be better to follow in His footsteps and follow His example than to not. But if we only try to imitate Jesus... And if Jesus is only a moral example for us, but we are not trusting in and resting in what He has done for us that we could not do, then we will live our lives trying to earn God's favor. We will live our lives trying to obey our way to heaven when God calls us to trust by faith and rest in what Christ has done. And only as we are resting in Him will we be empowered to obey. The Christian life is not just about emulating Jesus. It's about trusting in what He has done that we cannot do. It's about faith. 
And if we live our lives trying to earn God's favor by being like Jesus, if our our purpose and our thinking is, I just need to do enough good things, then we are adding weight onto our back that will eventually lead us to not finish the race. We cannot perfectly obey God. We cannot do exactly what Jesus did. We're empowered to follow Him by the Spirit when we trust in Him, but we don't do this and we don't run this race in order to earn God's favor, in order to earn our forgiveness. That's works righteousness, and that will leave us living in bondage. That will... That is adding weight to our back as we run this race. So looking to Jesus, it does mean following His example of endurance, but not in order to save ourselves. Looking to Jesus means remembering who He is, remembering what He's done, remembering how He's the one that qualified us to be in this race, remembering that He's the author and perfecter of our faith. It means remembering the gospel and preaching it to ourselves day after day after day. Because when you're on the race of the Christian Christian life and you're trying to be holy, you are going to have hard days and difficult days and sin will weigh heavy and doubts and temptations and trials and obstacles will be in your way. And as you're running, you're going to be tempted to give up, but you've got to preach the gospel and remember the gospel and speak truth to yourself and say, I am saved from condemnation because of Jesus. I am empowered by the Spirit's power to throw off this sin and throw off this selfishness and finish this race for Him. I am adopted by God who is my Father. He is not my judge. He is not my enemy. I have an inheritance that cannot be taken away. He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion. You have to remind yourself who you are in Christ. Day after day after day. Step after step after step as you walk the race of the Christian life. That's the first thing that the text says we have to do if we're going to live a life of holy war. If you're one who fills in the blanks on the back to wage war with our sin, we must first look to Jesus by remembering the gospel. Look to Jesus by remembering the gospel. At the end of verse 2, Jesus says, or or the, the author of Hebrews says concerning Jesus, that He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's the finish line. Being with God in His presence, where there is fullness of joy. Our crown of eternal life, our finish line, the prize that we are running after in this life is to dwell at peace with God and that will come after a life of faith, a life that is transformed like Jesus's life, a life of endurance and pressing on and sacrificing and pursuing holiness and dying to self through that pursuit. Verse 3 goes on, it says something very similar to verse 2. It says, look to Jesus in verse 2. In verse 3 it says, consider Him. Consider Jesus who did what? Who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. 
the author of Hebrews is not a perfect person who has never struggled with doubt and temptation and trial. The author of Hebrews knows that when you are living the Christian life and your sin is weighing you down, it is easy to get tired. It is easy to think, I will never finish this race. It is easy to grow faint-hearted and to consider just giving up because nothing I'm doing is working. And if you are only looking at yourself, if you're only looking at your efforts, if you're only looking at your circumstances, and you're not remembering that this race that you're on has already been finished by Jesus, and that His power is in you, if you're not thinking about what He has done and only what's going on around you, then you'll quit the race. So the author of Hebrews is trying to motivate you to press on, to not give up, to endure, and to do that by looking to Jesus and considering what He faced. And he asks a pointed question in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, have you, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's not asking a question, he's making a statement. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And in the midst of thinking, I've tried my best. I'm far too tired. I can't do anything else. I can't fight any harder. The author asks, are you bleeding? Let's be real. I will determine how hard you're striving after holiness based on the amount of blood shed in your life. How hard are you really trying? Are you gouging out eyes? Are you cutting off hands to put sin to death? Are you willing to do whatever it takes and to take radical measures? Consider Jesus. What did being holy mean for Him? To defeat sin, it required the shedding of Jesus' blood. Being holy for Jesus meant that enemies would come after Him and they would seek His life and they would put Him to death. But what did Jesus do? He finished the race. He finished the race faithfully. He was willing to do whatever it took to finish the race and to finish the call that God had put before Him. The author of Hebrews is saying, consider Him. Look to Him. Look to what He faced. He shed His blood for this. Then he asked in verses 5 through 9 if they've forgotten who they are. He wants them to be reminded that they are God's sons and daughters. So he says, read with me in verse 5, he's going to quote the Old Testament in the middle of this, back in Proverbs 3, verse 5 he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves. He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? What's the author saying here? He's saying don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted because your daily battle against sin is given to you from God your Father who loves you and is for you. He is your Father and He is training you and He is molding you and He is equipping you and He is preparing you and He is disciplining you. God does not have you in the throes of the battle that you are facing because He hates you or because He's ignoring you or because He's forgotten you. Instead, He has you where you are facing what you're facing because He loves you. He's preparing you for glory. He's maturing you for heaven. He's teaching you to depend on Him. He's training you to look to Jesus. He's rooting up the idols in your heart and in your lives. He's teaching you what true surrender means. He's molding and making you in to what He's called you to be. And He's doing it even through what you're facing now. God doesn't just know about the battle you're facing as a passive observer, but instead He is the sovereign Lord of the universe and He has ordained this as an act of love for your good. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that if God was not training you and equipping you and disciplining you in this way, then you would be illegitimate children. Parents who don't discipline their children and who let their children make all the decisions and call all the shots according to the logic of the author of Hebrews, do not love their children and are training their children to be unteachable, independent, and foolish with no accountability when they grow older. But God is a better Father than that. Verse 10 and 11. He says, for they, our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God our Father, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is working in our trials and our temptations and our doubts and our battle against sin. And it does not seem pleasant right now. Nobody likes a butt whooping when they're getting it from their daddy. Because when it's happening, it hurts. When you're going through it, you're thinking about how unfair life is. You're crying out injustice. You're wishing for other parents who would be cooler than this and would just let you do what you want and not take everything so seriously. In the moment, it's awful. And there's probably times that if you've been raised in a house like that, that you went to bed thinking, they hate me. My life is awful. But then this is what happens. You grow up. And you praise God for parents that disciplined you 
and that taught you that you cannot live this life without consequences for your actions and taught you that if you live foolish, then things will not go well. And you look around at people your age when you're older who are ruining their lives, who have no respect for authority, who think that no one can tell them anything, and you see how they are living as fools and you praise God for His grace, His painful, disciplining grace that He gave you through parents who loved you enough to make sure you knew that you're not the center of the universe and you reap what you sow. It's painful right now. But it's proof that our Father loves us. God is making His people holy through the battles that we face. Because you cannot get strong without resistance. You cannot become a peacemaker without facing conflict. You cannot be a problem solver if you've never faced any real problems. You cannot be made holy if you've never faced temptations and doubts and trials and hardship. And the author says here, don't give up because God is sovereign and He is for you. That's the second thing that we see in our text. To wage war with our sin, we must first look to Jesus by remembering the gospel. And then secondly, we must rest in God's sovereign, fatherly love for us. He goes on in verse 12. And he says, therefore. I've said this many times. When you see the word therefore... That's a transition word. It's there for a reason. You need to ask, what has He said right before this? What what He's about to say here is being built on the foundation of what He's already said. So so therefore, verse 12, therefore, because of Jesus' endurance on the cross to qualify you for this race, therefore, because Jesus is the author and perfecter of your faith, therefore, because God is sovereign as your Father and He loves you enough to train you and discipline you and make you holy through those trials, therefore, do what? Verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. I want to summarize what he just said right there. He said, get up. That's what he said. Get up up. I know you're tired from the heavy weights. I know that the race is long. I know that you want to give up because it's not easy. I know that that's why you're sitting down. I know that that's why you are sitting and not striving after holiness. I know that the race and the finish line looks too far, but get up. 
Your knees are tired, but if you do not get up and run after holiness, then your knees will stop working. Right now as it is, when you try, you're hobbling along and you look like a lame person walking. But if you sit here long enough and you get comfortable sitting here and not running the race, then they will stop working all together and your bones will get out of joint and you'll never be healed and you'll be bedridden and you'll be stuck here and you won't have any chance to finish the race. So get up. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. I know that it's hard. I know you don't feel worthy. You're not worthy. But Jesus, your Savior, has made you worthy. Jesus, your Savior, has made you worthy. God is in control of this. He is God. He is sovereign. He is Father. He is for you, not against you. He is working in your waiting. He is molding you into Christ-likeness. So get up and go. Go where? Go towards what? Read verse 14. Get up and go strive for peace with everyone and strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Get up. Run, strive, lay aside the sin that's holding you down. Why? Because there is a holiness that's required to see the Lord. To get to God. To be in His presence forever. To dwell with Him in heaven where the fullness of joy exists for all eternity. It requires that we be holy. He's not saying here that we're saved by our obedience. He's not saying that we're justified and forgiven because we do enough good works. He's not saying to forget all of that faith in Jesus and grace stuff. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying get busy earning your salvation. What he's doing here is he's balancing out the reality that we are saved by God's grace through our faith in what Jesus has done, but we are also saved to be like Christ, to be holy. He's saying the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 1. We were chosen by God before the foundation of the world for what? To be holy and blameless. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not by your work, so that no one may work. And yet in the very next verse, we were created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are not saved by being holy enough. We do not earn God's favor by our obedience. But friends, when we are truly saved and born again and forgiven by the blood of Jesus and exercising faith, and filled with the Holy Spirit, then what happens is that God always produces lives of running after holiness, putting sin to death, doing good works, not to be made right with God, but because we are right with God. We obey God and we say no to sin and we run after holiness with reckless abandon no matter the cost because our hearts have been changed from the inside out and we have a new affection for Jesus and we want to and love to follow God. So the author's saying here when he says, There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord that if we are not pursuing holiness, if we are not putting sin to death, if we are not running after righteousness, but instead we are comfortably and unrepentantly living in our sin, 
knowing that it's wrong and not caring. Comfortably living in the muck and mire of sin. If that is what our life is marked by, and we're not trying, and we're not desiring to be more like Christ, then it's possible and even likely that we have not truly been born again. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And the author does not want that to be the Hebrews' story. He does not want that to be our story. So he says, get up and strive for that holiness. Get up and finish the race. Get up and throw off the weight of sin that so easily entangles and weighs us down. Look to Jesus. Believe that God is sovereign. That He is for you, not against you. He is a Father who is training and equipping and disciplining you. Get up. And third point, be warned that eternity is at stake. Be warned that eternity is at stake. Verse 15. says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. The author says that being holy... It will involve many things, but specifically here he mentions being holy means being sexually pure. It means being self-controlled. And it means being heavenly minded. Esau, the brother of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the firstborn, famously gave up his birthright and the inheritance that would have been his for a pot of stew when he was hungry. Esau was controlled by his hunger and he gave up something far more valuable and that would last far longer, his birthright, to have his desires temporarily satisfied. Living for the moment instead of living for eternity is the mark of a fool according to the Bible. And the author doesn't want that for the Hebrews. And the author doesn't want that for us. But notice the wording of these commands he gives here in these verses. He says, see to it that no one fails to obtain God's grace. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and defiles who? Many. See to it that everyone is sexually pure and heavenly Minded. He's reminding us, if we read these verses carefully, that this letter is not written to an individual Christian who's trying to pursue holiness. It's written to a body of believers. It's written to a local church. And the author of Hebrews is saying, endure and finish the race. Kill sin and press on. Rest in the gospel. Believe in God's sovereign fatherly care. Together. Together. 
Why? Why together? Why does this matter? This is why. Fourth point. We must know that holiness is a community project. Holiness is a community project. He says, all of you who are hearing this letter together, help each other be holy. You're responsible for one another's walk with the Lord. If you see someone who has a blind spot in their life, you need to come alongside and help them. If you see someone among you who is professing with their mouth to follow Jesus, but they're living or acting in an unholy, Christ-belittling, Holy Spirit-quenching, Bible-denying way, you have to love them enough to go to them and call them to holiness. Love them enough, care about their soul care about Jesus' reputation enough that you'll hold them accountable to the Word of God in grace and in mercy and in love. But friends, love does not see someone who is living their life in unrepentant sin heading to hell and then claim that it's gracious to keep your mouth shut. That is not love. That is not how we love people. We love people by speaking the truth to them when they are straying because we care about their souls and we care about the Gospel and we care about Jesus his reputation and we care about God's glory. It is hateful to keep your mouth shut when someone is heading to the judgment of God and to pretend you're being gracious by not saying anything. That is hateful. But we are so backwards in the way we think about this that the thought of holding someone accountable, the thought of going to someone and saying, brother, sister, Jesus is better than this sin. God's Word calls us to this, and I'm struggling, and I'm, I'm right there with you, and I'm trying to run after holiness too, but I see this in your life, and I, I care about you too much. Let's pray together about this. Let's fast as we fight this sin together. Go back to Jesus. He's better. That is love. We're to pursue holiness together. That's one of the problems with modern day Christianity. We all have our own Bibles. We all have our own Bible apps and devotionals and speakers and conferences that we like to listen to. And those things are great gifts from the Lord that we can benefit from in great ways. But what those things enable us to do is try to live the Christian life without anyone else involved. So that we read the Bible on our own, but not together. We cut ourselves off from the benefit of hearing the Word of God and speaking about and thinking about and applying the Word of God from other believers and the gifts that they have. We can just do it our own way. I'm my Lone Ranger Christian. I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to run after holiness. And, and then we, we, we miss out and we cut ourselves off from the community that God has ordained to help make us more like Jesus. The fact of the matter is most of our New Testament is not written to individuals, it's written to churches. And therefore all the commands to do this and do this and do this and do this, they're not written to an individual to obey, they're written to a church to do together. We must spiritually protect one another from turning our eyes away from Jesus, from living for temporary treasures that will not last, from believing lies about God, from being destroyed by trials that come our way, from giving in to temptation that we're living right on the edge of. We must protect each other from falling into the trap of living lives that tell a lie about God and the gospel. We cannot do it alone. We need other people. We need people watching our blind spots, watching our back, caring for us through all of these things. That's the fourth point. Know that holiness is a community project. 
So the author of Hebrews, listen. What he said here, the, the big command, it's in the first couple verses, lay aside every weight and sin that's clinging closely to you. Why? So you can run the race God has put before you with endurance. Another way to say that is we are to strive for the holiness without which we will not finish this race and we will not see the Lord. We must do this. It is not a suggestion. It is commanded. Why must we do this? In His words, so that we will finish the race. So our spiritual lameness will not leave us bedridden. So we don't find ourselves unable to see the Lord at the finish line. So that we don't fail to obtain the grace of God. So that our lives aren't marked by unrepentant sin that denies our Master Jesus. So that we don't find ourselves like Esau who lived for the moment and sold his blessing only to never get it back and be rejected. Friends, if we continually live in our sin and do not strive after holiness, if we continually live in unrepentance, there is a point where repentance will no longer be available. We must strive after holiness so that we don't find ourselves so deep in our sin that we no longer even want to finish the race. So we no longer desire to see the Lord. Repentance will not be available forever and we must not wait. We must not ignore God's clear commands to run after holiness, repent of sin, and surrender to Jesus. Last verse, verse 17. This is about Esau. It says, For you know that afterward, when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau's loss of the birthright led to an emotional response of tears, but it did not lead to a renunciation of his unholy life. Esau cried, but he didn't repent. Because repentance is not just words and feelings. It's actions. It's life change. It's different priorities and different choices because you know Jesus is better. We will only finish the race that God has called us to run if we are remembering the promises of the gospel. If we are resting in God's fatherly, sovereign love. If we are warned that eternity is at stake and if we are running that race in community with other believers who when we fall will pick us up as we press on slowly but surely to the finish line. That is how we pursue holiness. That is how we keep going and don't give up. That is how we throw off the weight of sin. And the question becomes, are you running that race? Or have you stalled out? Are you weary and faint-hearted 
and feeling broken down, thinking that you will never overcome the sin that is clinging to you? Are your hands this morning drooping low and you're on your knees giving up hope that you can ever finish the race God has called you to? Friends, if that is you, listen. Lift your eyes to Jesus. Remember, He has finished the race. Rest in His finished work. Trust that your Father God is for you, not against you, and He's in control. Heed the warnings of the Scriptures. Make a friend and live holy lives together. You cannot run the race alone. We need the Gospel. We need a faith and a God bigger than us. We need warnings and reminders and we need the church because there is an enemy who wants nothing more than for your faith to fail and for you to give up and not finish the race. But God has provided you with the resources needed to keep pressing on. But we must pick up those weapons. We must press on in that long, hard race. God has given us what we need, but we must get up and keep going. We must not give up. We must not stall out. God is for you, not against you. God is with you. Keep running. Eyes fixed on the prize. Run to Jesus. He's finished the race. And He is with us as we finish our race. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank You this morning for Your grace and mercy. And we acknowledge, God, that it is only by that grace and mercy and it's only by Jesus' work for us that we can be right with You. Father God, I pray right now for the believer among us who who's wanting to give up, who's trying to make sense of what they're facing, who feels like they, they lack the power and the resource to, to even keep going. And I just pray, God, that You will give them hope and peace, that You will help them to lift their drooping hands and get off their weak knees and look to You. Look to Jesus, our Savior. God, I pray for the brother or sister in Christ this morning who for far too long has allowed sin to reign in their life. Making excuses for it, justifying it, living at peace with it, grading themselves on the curve, thinking that God's grace allows them to continue to live unrepentantly in sin. God, if that is anyone here, I pray this morning that they will go to You and repent, not just with an emotional response or a prayer, but with a life of change. God, Your Spirit can do that. God, I pray this morning, if anyone here has been living their life consistently in unrepentant sin and has never turned to You, God, help them to know that You are a God who saves and who shows us grace, who deals with our guilt and who deals with our powerlessness and who makes a way for us to have a future eternal joy in Your presence. God, whether our need this morning is repentance or praise, whether our need this morning is salvation or sanctification. I pray that as we sing this last song, God, that you will lead us to respond as you, as you call us. God, help us to be sensitive to your Spirit. 
God, we so often think of the altar to be these steps down front, and they're open every week, Lord, but we can meet with you right where we are. We can come to the altar where Jesus Christ has laid down His life for us. We can repent and believe and remember the gospel, whether we're standing or sitting, whether we're singing or quietly reflecting. God, we pray that You will help us now to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Strengthen us. Bind up our wounds. Give us the resolve to press on. God, give us the endurance to not give up. We pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy and saving name. Amen.